Hi, everybody. It's Keila Glassberg here. Welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Keila. And today I have on the podcast Elisheva Lahasky slash Berkowitz. Um, Elisheva is a really good friend of mine, and um, she's a therapist. And she's always teaching me stuff and listening to me. And of course, she's not my therapist. She's my friend. But I learned so much from her. And in the last few, I don't know, years, she's been going on and on and on about somatic therapy. And I'm like, okay, so come on the podcast, come on the podcast, talk about it. And I finally did get her on the podcast for just part one of our conversation. Part two, we're going to be a little bit more hands-on and really trying to understand what the somatic therapy is and how it can be used and why it's so powerful. And um, it's just a really fun conversation. And it's just interesting to hear how people go from one idea for a career to a totally different um, idea for a career, but how like different skills can really overlap in so many different ways. And I hope that that, even if maybe you're the type of person right now that's like unhappy at your job or feeling a little bit like, why did I go to school for this? Like you really never know where life will take you. So I hope that that is something that you could learn from this episode. Um, I wanted to tell you that I am doing some work to my website, www.gulaglassberg.com. So there you could find a lot of blog posts and podcasts like this or videos, but I also do have a recipe tab now and I'm excited for you to go check it out. Um, and there is another, there is, I've updated my shop so you could buy certain courses. You could buy a self-paced intuitive eating course. You could buy, um, an IFS, um, an IFS episode with Shira Fruchter where we do IFS in real time. There's so many different things you could purchase on the website. And if you have something that you are specifically looking for and you don't see it, um, please reach out and, uh, without further ado, I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Please leave a rating and a review and share it with people who you think can benefit from all this good intuitive eating um, information. Have a great day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I've come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Gila. I'm Gila Glassberg, your host, registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. And today I have on Elisheva Berkowitz slash Lahasky. Hi, Elisheva. Hi, Gila. How are you? I'm good. Okay, so full disclosure, we're really good friends, but right. Elisheva is also a therapist. And um, Elisheva, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where do you live and what do you do? So I live in Woodmere. I am a therapist. And, um, I guess that's, that's pretty much it. I do different types of therapy and one of them is somatic therapy. So I took advanced trainings to be able to be a somatic therapist. Got it. Okay. So 
tell us, let's go back a few years. Um, did you always know that you want to be a therapist? No, actually not. Okay. So when did you figure it out? So I figured it out when I realized that I did not want to go for law. I originally was on like a law track. I didn't know um, that. Really? I re I knew you were going to say what? Yes. I thought I was going to be a lawyer from when I was in high school through probably my first or second year of college. Why uh, law? What, what drew you to law? So I would say I'm a pretty good orator. And I, at that point, like felt like I had what it takes to like prove a point and the idea of um, doing litigation was something that was, that interests me um, and to be in a courtroom and the whole why of it all. So that was definitely something that interests me. Um, I don't know. There was, you know, in high school, I didn't do much. Let's just say that. I didn't do much, but like read, uh, but I was very into politics and current events. And like that definitely like struck me as like my interest points. Um, and then. Actually, I never would have known this about you. I know you never would have known this about me. I was very, I was very fiery way back when. Before You're you so fiery. Me, I'm fiery, but on a, a lower term. I'm definitely mellow also. Right. I was not mellow then. Funny. You're so um, mellow. You give off such a mellow vibe. I think it comes with a lot of like work on myself and being comfortable with who I who I am. Like mm -hmm. as I did my own self exploration and and becoming more comfortable with myself, the more I'm able to like it's okay. The world doesn't need to know my opinion. Right. It's like they say about extroverts that like, like some extroverts are like, like crazy loud life of the party because mm -hmm. they like are deflecting, you know, like they feel right. like they have to overcompensate, which is so interesting because like you don't think of an extrovert like that. You just think they're super confident, but sometimes they're like, you know, overcompensating. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm going to think about that one a little more, but not now. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll talk about that later on our, on our food date. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So what any lawyers in your family like was it was that something that like you knew lawyers or like you thought like was it like a finance from a financial perspective or it was really just an interest um sorry I'm just gonna exit out of my work email because it just keeps banging but um as far as like work people so I'm like same work but home um so I'm the youngest that probably pay, played a big part into like, I needed to prove my point and mm -hmm. to be taken seriously. And everybody right. else was older than me. And, right. you know, so it got, it got me started with this fiery part, if you want to call it that way. Um, I don't know. It wasn't like this, like deeply thought out job. And that's why when I started to really look into it, um, I realized that it really didn't match up with my values of what I wanted in my life overall. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't the work schedule that I wanted either. Right. For sure. Was I mean, there are lawyers that have more flexible schedules. True. It's not, you know, you have lawyers, especially now post COVID, they work from home. Yeah. But at that point, um, and also with litigation, like you're bound to the 
court, you're bound to their schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and also actually once, I mean, you know, my, my journey in my jobs, but, um, I started to get more of a taste of family law when I worked at OHEL mm-hmm. as a case manager and doing the foster care system. And it was exciting and it filled that role for me for a little bit, but then like, I was like, okay, enough. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause as a case worker, someone who worked in foster care, you need to go into court and you need to testify as to how the kids are doing, how visits are going between the parents and, and foster parents and, and biological parents. Um, you know, and you have to really testify to the children's, like, I would say social, emotional, and um, academic and overall wellness. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. You you like that? I enjoyed it. Uh, but it also made you realize that, like, whatever you see in court and all the litigation, a lot of it's, like, played out, like, prepped. Like, we were prepped to go to court. We were prepped to present we were prepped to testify into our notes mm-hmm. right so in some ways it's not like oh they're calling me up and I've never seen that document before or I've never I mean it could be different with criminal I don't know what you know I haven't been in a criminal court case hearing and you know I, I don't plan on right um hopefully you <laughs> but, never will be yeah exactly <laughs> But did um, therapy ever on your radar? Like, were you like, okay, law, oh, therapy school, or like it just came to you when you were in college? So I think it was something that I was always someone who was emotionally aware, always intrigued by the psyche and psychology and why people do what they do. And as somebody who has all my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, um, I was like the observer in the family. And I noticed what was going on and how people were acting and why they were acting a certain way. And but I always wanted to understand, like when I observed how they were acting, it wasn't like, oh, okay, they're they're acting that way, right? It was what's behind it. I always wanted to know why. Why would they choose to be that way? Why would they act that way? Why are they taking that position? And so I was always intrigued by like I guess human behavior and psychology. And without knowing this, like I would talk to like my siblings who some of them, like each of my siblings I'm I'm close to in different ways. Um, And there was one like sister in particular who we would have hour long conversations on like psychology without even realizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, At least at that point, I didn't realize that, oh, we're basically breaking down and psychoanalyzing Mm -hmm. different behaviors and dynamics and you know from a very young age it's also a very deep thinker mm-hmm. like I never I was one of those kids in school who always asked why not because of wanting to um be difficult in any way but I really wanted to understand behind everything mm-hmm. like I'm very much like a visual learner I'm in trying to understand things and really concretize it so therapy really like fits that. So therapy definitely fits that. I didn't realize way back then. Right, that, right. You know, that's what a therapist does. Right. Um, it was only once I ruled out that law was not my route that I was like, okay, I need to find something else. And even in like school, like I remember being on Shabbaton and this girl who I've never 
spoken to before came over to me and we started schmoozing. And before I knew it, we were having like a very intense um, conversation about her family. And, and I remember thinking to myself, like, how did that happen? Like, I did not see that coming. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that I kind of was his magnet in a certain way. Right. You have like all the skills, the natural skills or like the intuition, whatever, to be a therapist, to like hear people's pain, to like welcome people to talk to you. So yeah, like, you know, from a personal perspective, but from a, like a professional perspective, obviously something happened that it made you realize like, oh, I could, I want to do this professionally. Yeah. So then at that point I was like, okay, like what would be a job that would allow for me to have flexibility that down the line, I can have my private practice that down the line, I could, you know, be a mom and a wife and also have a career. Right. So therapy fit that role. So the therapy fit that role. I wasn't a hundred percent sure about it. And that's when I started um, volunteering. Um, mm. Where did you volunteer? You volunteer? When you worked in foster care, when you were Before doing I that? I worked in foster care. So I was actually working. I worked full time when I was in undergrad. Um, I worked for a management company. I worked with one of my sisters, um, shout out to her. We worked together for three years. I didn't um, know this, a management company. <laughs> yeah. A real estate management company. For we three years and I didn't know that. We did it for three years. I must I do all the talking when we hang out, Alicia. <laughs> no, we just don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just never interviewed you. So I didn't get to hear the full, you know, the full thing. So three years in exactly. real estate, you did three years in real estate just for like, whatever, the money, like it wasn't. Like pay, yeah. yeah, no, it didn't interest like, me. No, okay. I did accounts payable. Um, I had worked there the year before I went to seminary in the summertime. Um, and then I continued once I got back. And then when did you volunteer? Like during that time that you were working, so you were also the, volunteering? Yeah, sorry. During the last year of undergrad, I was like, okay, I really need to get my stuff together. Like, I have to figure this out. I think I want to go for social work, but I'm not 100% sure. So I was like, you know what? I asked my school, I'm like, what if, like, is there any internship opportunities? I'm like, well, actually, you can get a few credits. One of your, like, elective, elective credits can be doing some sort of field work in undergrad. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. So I called up Ohal and I said, I want to volunteer. And they said, these are the opportunities. And I said, sure, I would love to work in the foster care department. And I did, I'd say, five months or six months of internship there, where I would observe visits between biological parents and their children. And I would write up the summary, and then that would go into the case record. Wow. Yeah. Um, and shout out to, she's another therapist, Karen Gutman, who's in also the area. Um, and I worked under her. And then she was going out on maternity leave and she decided she didn't want to come back for her position. So then they called me up when I was almost on my internship there and said, Hey, do you want to work for us Wow! as a case manager? You didn't have to have a degree at that point. So most of the case managers did, but I guess they felt like they were okay with me coming in without my degree, knowing that I was going to go to graduate school. Um, and so I, I took the position. And that's where you were for three years. And that's where I was for three years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So 
you didn't know, did you, you said in your last year, you were figuring out your career. So the whole time you were in undergrad, you weren't sure like where you were going to go for your master's or you weren't sure what you were going to do. I wasn't a hundred percent sure. I was definitely going for my, you know, BA in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't sure. Like, do I go for, do I go for social work? Um, I mean, OTPT, all these things didn't inspire me in any way. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I didn't want to do that. And then it was really like, do I go for social work? Do I go for like a mental health counseling degree? Do I, um, do I commit to like a side D? Like what would be the pros and cons of that? Um, then yeah, I decided on social work. So then you got your degree in social work, like your master's. And then in the meantime, you were working at OHEL as a case manager. Yes. I was working at OHEL as a case manager and ended up working out really well because I was able to do something called, uh, blanking on the name but basically a work study where you can work somewhere and they add additional um roles to your position so that i can do my internship there so i was able to keep a job and be able to get my internship because ultimately what i was doing was a social work job right basically yeah yeah so, and then I, I already know like what, what you do now, but I'm saying, did you know, like, was this like all learning curve? Like, or did you know in the back of your head, if I do social work, I'm going to also get all the hours and I'm going to get my L and then my C, right. And then I'm going to be able, like, you knew that that was like your eventual goal at this point, or you were just sort of like learning as you went. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, you know, I, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that like during, there were two parts, right. So there was figuring out my career. And also when I decided I wanted to go for social work, right? So then there were moments in my life where I went to therapy and that it was inspirational to be like, wow, I can be that somebody in somebody else's life that can bring them from point A to point B. Right. Like I had different Mm -hmm. bouts of therapy that I've been through. Um, And so that definitely was also a deciding factor of like, I can see myself doing clinical work. I can see myself being a therapist and meeting with people individually you know, I think that there is what I was ultimately looking for was a job that wasn't a like kind of root job where like you do the same thing again and again, right. once repeat, and that's right. it. Like right. some people, that's fine because other areas of their life are exciting and that can be right. the way it is, right? Like my husband's an accountant. Right. I cannot imagine what it's like to sit in front of a computer and look at spreadsheets all day, all day but he is happy to do that. Right. Right. To me, it would be like, oh, my gosh. And I did that. I did do the road for three years while I was working in a management company. I did accounts payable. And that was like it paid to do it because I was getting a nice paycheck. Mm -hmm. But I knew that that wasn't my end goal. Like if I had to do that for the rest of my life, I would really find it difficult. Right. So I think the idea of doing something where it's not everybody's the same. Everybody's so different. Right. right. And meeting somebody new. And I, I love people. Like I'm, I'm definitely a people person. Like some people go to an event that there's tons of people and they come back and they're exhausted. I go to events where there's tons of people and I come back hyper. Right. So, Extra. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, okay. So we want to talk about somatic work, which is what you're doing now. Yes. But, okay. So let me just, I'll fill in the gap. So how you're 32, right? Yes. Okay, so when you started your degree to get your social work degree, how old were you? Were you 23? 
22. 22. Okay. So 11 years later. So now you're doing, now you're starting your own private practice and you're doing a lot of really good things and you took all these advanced trainings. So walk me through how that happened from going, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, was it that you are like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to become a therapist and I understand that I'm going to be counseling people and I'm going to get to know them and help them. But at a certain point, you decided to take on like new modalities and learn new things. So what, what sparked yeah. that interest? I don't think I'm ever going to stop being interested in the psyche and how we can help other people. So I think that's one of the propelling factors of like, well, you know, why I continue to learn and continue to grow as a therapist um, and why I won't stop learning, right? Because science is always changing. Science is always, there's so much research and studying, you know, the brain and understanding the brain better. And that's what helps us as therapists understand our clients better and not only understand them better, but understand how to work with them better. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, I'm going to back up and I'm going to go through to what you asked me. Um, So obviously it was, I would say my internships were like a boot camp, right? Working with um, children in the foster care system. I don't know if there's anything, maybe working in the prison system probably helps you like more of a boot camp. But it's understanding the psyche, seeing the dynamics, seeing really everything you learn in school, you see it in front of you, mm-hmm. right? Be it addictions, abuse, um, you name it, right? Family dynamics, attachment. Like these are big key factors and you see it in front of you as you're working with these families. Um, and so it was probably the biggest learning curve for me as far as what I was seeing. It's very nice to read it in the books, but then to be able to see it in front of you. Um, I knew I wanted to do clinical work. I just didn't know in what area. I love working with kids. And so that was definitely something that I was thinking about doing play therapy, which is something I do as well um, in addition. But I, I think what was the overall aha moment for me was like, everybody experiences some sort of trauma in their life, whether we want it or not. It can be a big T trauma, which is like a big event, or it can be a little T trauma, right? It could be day-to-day stressors. Um, our, our system, meaning our nervous system, doesn't differentiate between, I'm so stressed right now because I don't know where my keys are and I need to get to carpool, And right, you're still having a system response, right? A nervous system response Um, versus I just witnessed somebody in an accident, Mm -hmm. right? The symptomology of what we experience, I would say is, is the same system that's firing. It might be less intense right? Our response might be less intense, but it's still the same system. So I'm going to backtrack because I'm probably leaving you in the dark. When we think about the brain, um, there is the prefrontal cortex, which has our logic and our reasoning. And Dr. Dan Siegel's great. He explains this like the hand model of the brain. So this is my prefrontal cortex. This is my amygdala. This is my brainstem. Okay, <clears throat> my brainstem controls all my automatic body parts and body functions, right? 
my organs, my heart, um, my breathing, right? Like we don't have to tell ourselves to breathe. Right. Right. My amygdala um, is actually a part of my brain that its primary job is to keep me safe. And so it's scanning my environment every four seconds to see, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Right. When he talks about flipping the lid, right? So that when my amygdala goes off, it kind of fires to my brain saying, I'm not safe, right? Everything such as my logic and my reasoning that is not needed to keep me safe goes offline. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's why he calls it what that I flip my lid, mm-hmm. right? It goes offline. And my automatic system, which is my brainstem takes over. Right. So all my logic and my reasoning is not present, but that my digestive system and my brain and my hormones are all kicking into gear to keep me safe. We also know this as the fight and flight or the freeze and fawn stage. Right. So everybody's going to have one of those responses when we're not feeling safe. Right. Or when we're stressed. Right. Right. Because our nervous system is the same, does not change. And so when somebody is feeling really, really stressed, a lot of times when people say like, I can't think straight. Right. Because they actually can't think straight. Mm -hmm. Right. Their logic and their reasoning is offline. And it's actually their digestive system also goes offline. Right. And that's why a lot of times when people are so stressed, they're not hungry when they're feeling so anxious, they can't eat. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that part of our body is not functioning right now right what's going on is that i have hormones pumping into my system i am trying to keep myself safe i might be sweating i might feel like i'm having heart palpitations right my heart's beating really really quickly because it needs to get enough oxygen into my system to either do fight and flight right fight whatever is coming run as quick as i can away from it okay or to freeze or fawn, which is a lot of times we see with somebody who is what we could call, you know, say a hostage at this point, right? Where they, like the Stockholm syndrome, where like they become friends to their captors because that is the safest option for them in that moment. So I always preface this with, we don't, logically make this conscious choice into how we're going to respond right it's not like oh this is the safest it happens in a split second and again it's our nervous system assessing the situation and saying like this is what's bad what this is what's safest for me do we but there is there like um any factors that would that would like lean like make us lean more towards one response than another and and is it how do we like let's say we don't want to freeze right like I know we spoke about this a lot like not here but like let's say like you know like you're saying like your nervous system can't differentiate between certain trauma so let's say like you're somebody says something to you that's really mean and all of a sudden like your nervous system is like you know like you feel like you're going to faint or like you feel like you can't talk right and like obviously that's not the same as like somebody physically abusing you so you're like I really don't want to have 
the same response as that those two things I want but like you can't help it so I'm assuming that that there are ways to like learn how to how to maybe lower the volume so you asked me one question before that I'm going to answer the way we respond to um something in the past is naturally what our body is going to continue doing right so most people when I meet with clients I ask them what's your end goal right? What's your go-to coping mechanism? Because most of the time people don't just fluctuate between like, oh, today I'm going into hyper arousal where I'm mm -hmm. anxious and overwhelmed and yelling and, um, you know, having outbursts or, and tomorrow I'm going into zoning out. Mm -hmm. Right. I said hyper arousal and hypo arousal. Just want to explain because I'm using words that I'm used to using and I'm realizing that other people listening probably don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. So another word for flight and fight is hyper arousal. It sounds how it is hyper. Our body goes into overdrive in that we might be like have outbursts, anger, aggression, um, feeling more anxious, feeling more irritable, um, but that we're still very much connected to our emotions. Mm. In that maybe we're not noticing it in the moment, but that our response is with some sort of emotion usually. Whereas the freeze and fawn, we actually disconnect from our emotions. And so we might become numb, kind of like despondent, doing things by rote. Um, a lot of times we get like monotone when we're answering people as they're talking to us, like whatever you want, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, yeah, no, that's what we're talking about. Um, and kind of doing things just cause like, maybe it's a list that we have to get through, but not being connected to the people present. around us. Like we're yeah. not present. We're not there. We're like, this is we're this. not there. Right. And some people like, this is where dissociation happens also where they're totally disconnected. Um, sometimes people dissociate where it's just like a fuzz. I would say kind of like we're like, it's zoned out, but it's like fuzzy but we're here still in the room. Sometimes people dissociate where they're watching themselves from afar. There's different types mm -hmm. of dissociation. Some people, they're just like spaced. Mm -hmm. They're very spacey. Okay. And then the second question. So remind me, the second question. The second question is like, like I was saying before, there's like, you know, little big T, little, little T. Um, mm -hmm. and like, so, sometimes we're not happy with the way we know we're going to respond. Um, like, yeah, you know, whatever a family member makes a comment and like, they always make the same comment and you're like, okay, this time I'm not going to get angry. And then all of a sudden you're like, now I'm going to die, <laughs> you know, like, and you're like, I don't really right. want to feel like that every time. Like I want to regulate, like, I'm sure right. that's, I'm assuming right. that's what you help people do. And maybe that's yeah. a segue into the somatic. I'm not sure. I don't know. Right. So Somatic is actually what it is. If you break the word down, I actually know this because I taught psych last year. Um, but the soma is actually the like the brain of the nerve. Okay. So when we talk, it's called the soma. And when we talk about somatic interventions, we're talking about working with our nervous system. Right? It's the soma. Mm -hmm. um, and by learning how to regulate our nervous system, I connect do what you said, right? I can teach my system that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't 
have to respond in that specific way, right? But it's not, that's what makes it different about than cognitive work. Right? Now, you're, now you have to explain that. Explain that. So there's, so cog- when, there's cognitive work and there's other types of work. So explain right. it. There's, ugh, I have this picture and I, I'd have to send it to you. Maybe you can post it as the picture for the. For sure. Um, I'll post it. But it's, when we talk about the brain, right? There's the right brain and there's the left brain. Okay. Um, and now I'm scared that I'm getting myself mixed up here. Um, but um, the left brain, I'm trying to pull up the picture, but um, the left brain, I'm going to double check this as we speak. Here we go. Yes, I'm right. Okay. So the left brain is actually this picture. I don't know if you'll be able to see it clearly, but it's, it's really cool. It's a great picture. I see it pretty well. Okay. So the left brain really like it is detail oriented. It's more of the academic part of our brain. Um, it's logical, se- sequential, rational, you know, controls the math and the science and, you know, um, words, language, present, past, knowing, um, like these are the parts of the brain that it really controls and it looks quite neat. So the picture of this brain, it looks like little cubicles right? and everything goes in nice and neatly, right? Whereas the right brain is actually, it controls more of like the creative part of our brain. Um, you know, it really looks at the bigger picture, um, more of intuitive sensing, feeling, um, like really we're, we're able to use our imagination. Um, and so when we talk about different types of therapies, the cognitive therapies work from more of a left brain, right? Because it's doing the logic and the reasoning and understanding. And, um, you know, so let's say we're doing some CBT work, we're replacing, let's say, a negative thought. Right. So every time I have this negative thought, I'm going to replace it. Right. And it works and it works for a lot of people. When we talk about more of somatic therapies, we're really working in the right brain. Right. And as a somatic therapist, I'm trained to know based on what you're saying, your body language, what you're doing. Um, what part of your brain you're accessing. That is really cool. Because a lot of times when we're sensing and feeling inside, and Gila, if it's okay, right? You said this to me in one of our conversations of like, I need time to sit on this and think about this, right? And my initial thought is as a therapist, and I shut my mouth because I'm not my friend's therapist, is to sometimes when we need to sit on something, I'm always like, let's do a head to toe scan and notice where you're sensing inside when you think about that thing. Well, what's the connection between sitting on something and head to toe scan? Sitting on something is I need to think about it. I need to like really understand it versus don't try to understand it. Notice where it is inside. Sense it inside. Sense the feeling right? And stay with it as long as it feels okay, right? We can go back to it at any point, right? Because there, 
we can get to the same results in processing, either through logic and reasoning, or we can get to it through our nervous system, which is the sensing and the feeling. And that's really what somatic work does, is that we're accessing the same content just through a different door, a different way. So interesting. Uh, but my job as a therapist is that it can go really deep and really quick. Right. Right. And, and I can say this as somebody who is a therapist and someone who is also is on the receiving end of this work. Of somatic, right? Of somatic work. Yeah. Right. Hold on one second. I want to just go back a few steps. Sure. But I'm assuming that when you became a therapist, did you know about somatic work? Mm-mm. But it was something that was very intuitive to me. When you learned about it? Even before then. It, it, Meaning, it, it dawned on you, like something besides for the like cognitive I mind. Th- I think what I always noticed in working with clients is that sometimes we have this disconnect between our heart and our mind. Right. And I always wanted to know where that was. Mm. Right. Because sometimes our head can know it. And then our heart feels so different. Right. For sure. And it's like, how do we hold those two? How do we connect them? How do we make that connection? There's gotta be something. And I think that's the key in where I was like, I need to know more about this. I Mm -hmm. need to understand this more. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Rifkin Issel, who was my supervisor for, I would say four years. Um, And she really gave me the first tastes of doing somatic work. Um, She's not a somatic therapist. But that, you know, she would take trainings and give over information to me. And so big names like Janina Fisher or, you know, the polyvagal theory, right? These are systems that really do a lot of research, did a lot of research, or that research was done. And then this modality or understanding of our nervous system came about. And so they published work and they now you know there's a whole polyvagal theory of understanding our nervous system you know and then there's you know that so that was Stephen Porges and then you know different therapists then took it and broke it down so like we have the knowledge of the brain and how our nervous system works well then how do we break it down into day-to-day therapy providing therapy for clients with this system, right? And so then Janina Fisher was one of those founders who took it and made it very applicable to therapy. Is it new? Is it newer somatic? I would say it's definitely not new. You know, we have Peter Levine who's been doing this with um, war veterans for years um, he's also, you know, the father of considered one of the fathers and uh, founders of somatic therapy. Um, you know, there's different types, I would say, of somatic therapies out there. There's somatic experiencing, there's somatic interventions, there's, you know, but it's all, again, it's all working with the same nervous system. And anybody who's a therapist is going to be working with the same nervous system. Right. 
And so, you know, there were a few pieces of when I was, you know, just starting out as a therapist is that I, I knew I wanted to get a very good foundation in trauma work because that's essentially what we see day in, day out right. in our, in our sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trauma could be, again, something that's big T and something that's a little T, right? And, and nobody knows when something's going to happen to them. Right. Right. And, and one and two people can experience the same event and one person can have, you know, long-term effects from it. And some people it's just, okay, like that happened. And that's part of my life. Mm-hmm. For sure. So that was really, you know, that was my mindset of what I felt like I needed as a therapist. And then from, you know, having a good trauma foundation, I then was exposed to more of like somatic interventions. Um, another, you know, shout out, you know, is to Hattie Rubel, who was always like, she started out as my professor at Turo and we kept in touch. And um, she always told me, she's like, you have to take Ricky Bernstein's trainings. And I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. And like starting out, you're working in a clinic, you're not making a lot of money. Um, and so I was like, oh my gosh, like how am I basically going to take my entire ticket paycheck and right. put that towards a, a training right now? It just right. never was the right time. But I consistently sought out training that educated me um, in different areas, you know, whether it was grief and bereavement or it was um, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I definitely, I had my fair share of different roles along the way, um, working with teens at risk while working in the clinic, um, and then getting the opportunity during the height of COVID to put together a training on trauma-informed care for teachers, um, and presenting that to teachers. And I realized like, wow, the world really doesn't know so much about this Mm -hmm. and how the brain works. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that intrigued me even more. Like I was able to spend five months putting together a training. Um, and this was based on Peter Levine and Janine Fisher and all of this. And yet, like when I trained and I went into schools where you have teachers who are teachers for years and years and years, and they were looking at me like, wow, this answers so many questions. Like we know what we're looking at. Right. And so that's when it really hit me as far as like, I need to go, like, I need to do this. It's kind of like a calling. The training, you mean? Yeah. You're doing the training. So, so you did it. Yeah. That, you did that. I did it. So I did three levels. How long, how long did it take you? Um, it took me about like a year and a half to get through her trainings, but I continue to get supervision from her. Wow. So how, how long have you been, how long have you been practicing, like, somatic work on on Uh, um, I would say you know I I definitely started practicing somatic work but not as like a somatic therapist from when I took her first training and I was like wow this is like it it just answered everything for me it's sort of like when I learned about intuitive eating as a dietitian and I'm like oh 
Right. That's the right. gap. That's like yeah. the major gap. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And Ricky actually calls that her level one is called the missing piece. Mm. Right. And I think that like, as other, like other therapists would get this, like there is a certain level of like intuition mm-hmm. that like, there were certain things that I already knew. Um, you know, like the piece of like the disconnect between the heart and the mind. Right. I knew it. I, I knew what I was seeing or like, as a, as a therapist, you know, we learn about the attachment theory and always, you know, asking myself when I have a client in front of me, um, you know, what are, what am I seeing? Trying to understand it from my client's perspective. And I, I always use a puzzle, puzzle analogy with clients is that therapy, the therapy process is really a puzzle, a puzzle for the therapist and a puzzle for the client. Because when I meet with a client, so we do an intake, like, great. What does that tell me? Tell me the basics. Mm-hmm. And then as I get to know my client more and I get to know that person's personality and their tendencies and all of that, right? Then I fill in the pieces from that puzzle that are missing. And I could tell you as, as you know, I have clients who I've worked with for a few years now, um, you know, thinking of one particular client, I'm still learning things about my clients that never stops. Mm-hmm. And so that puzzle continues to grow and grow and grow, right? My job as a therapist is also to help them see that puzzle. Right, for sure. Right, to help them see their tendencies, their patterns, their, because that's where the change happens, mm-hmm. Right. That's more on a cognitive level when doing somatic work. Um, a lot of times clients come to me, not because, um, they're seeking out specific somatic work, but it's a lot of times when either there's a trauma that they don't want to do cognitive work on, um, or have tried cognitive work and it is not, it just, it's not going. And. I think people beat themselves up and they think like, oh, right. well, I'm a bad client. Right. Or I spent all right? this money I, I and failed. time. Right. I, I think that people more that, oh, that was a waste of time. But I think more people internalize it. Like I'm a failure. I failed therapy. Right. Or like therapy doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? But sure. that there's so many types of therapy. Right. I think that it's, you know, the same way it's a shift between a client and a therapist, it's also the modality mm-hmm. that the therapist is going to use. For sure. Not, it's not a one size fits all. Not every type of therapy is going to be a fit for somebody. Right. And that it can be that that specific modality worked up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. It would be cool if a client came into like a therapy center and there was like 10 therapists that did like all different types of things and they would like kind of like interview the client and they'd be like, oh, I think this would work for her for the that Like, you know, because like clients don't know this. People don't know this when they call a therapist. Right. Right. I know a lot of times people say like, I was told that DBT would be a good option. Right. And then, you know, I always wonder like, what do you know about DBT? Right. Right. Sure. What? Exactly, you know, but then people want help, 
they want to be helped. Right. Right. And so if that's going to be the magic answer, of course, we're going to want that. Right. For sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my situation with somatic therapy. Well, tell uh, us what it is. Tell us how does it work? A client comes to you, give us as much as you can. I know we were running out of time and I know right. what, just to say we're going to do a follow-up on this. Yeah, we definitely can do a follow-up. Yeah. So what is it? What is somatic? Therapy? Somatic therapy is a type of therapy that works with the nervous system. It's that um, I don't need to regurgitate and, and talk about my whole everything to be able to process very different than, than narrative work where I'm talking and I'm talking and talking. And it does, it's not strictly that, meaning it can be a process in both where I can do talking and I can do the work. Um, but that when we're using the sensing and the feeling, I can tell you a summary of something and that can evoke enough emotion in me I don't need to tell you what's going on, but that I can process it inside, mm -hmm. right? We don't jump into the deep end where, okay, tell me, you know, give me a headline, what we call it, of like a one a sentence or a few words of what that is that you want to process. We get our nervous system used to regulating, regulating itself, right? That's my first and primary job with clients is that, I can help you regulate, right? And I think of it, I'm gonna use a gym analogy, is that if somebody goes into the gym and decides that they're gonna do a boot camp 45 minutes straight, right? They're probably gonna be winded pretty quickly in, and they're probably gonna give up. But if somebody says, that's my goal, I wanna do the boot camp, right? But today I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to go on the treadmill for 15 minutes and up it and up it and up it each time a little more that eventually when they go to the boot camp, they could handle it. Mm -hmm. Right. They have the stamp. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, you know, when, and this is for any client and any therapist, when a client learns a skill, we need to teach our system, our nervous system, how to use it when we're calm, mm -hmm. right? If I can use it when I'm calm, then it goes from, and I use it consistently, it actually takes about like 40 days to integrate it from new information to something that becomes automatic, right? And so if I do it consistently for 40 days, then when I'm feeling the slightest bit stressed, and then call upon it. But I can't expect myself to use it in a boot camp when I've learned it three days before that. Right. Right. I need to use it consistently. And then once I feel like it's actually something that's automatic for me, so then I can use it when I'm stressed on, let's say, a scale from zero to 10, a two. Mm -hmm. Once I've successfully used it when I'm stressed at a two, then I can go on to use it at a three or a four or a five or a six. Right. Because otherwise, I'm trying to recall something that's new. I'm trying to access my logic and my reasoning. But my logic and reasoning is totally offline at that point. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's why, you know, I have so many people who have told me skills don't work for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, let's back up. Right? right? I'm not going to argue with you. 
right? right? Because everybody knows themselves best. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to tell anybody what works or doesn't work for them. Right. Like, that's their that's their job in therapy is to figure out like what's a skill that works and what doesn't, what resonates with me and what doesn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then because they're the expert in their life. Right. Right. I, you know, as a therapist, our job is not to be an expert, right? If somebody wants advice, they can go to a coach, a life coach, mm-hmm. right? My job as a therapist is to help them learn more about themselves, about their systems, and, and make changes in ways that it works for them. Right. Um, yeah, I feel like, the, I mean, you taught me this just like, because you're my friend, but I'm saying, I realized like, with my own therapist that does like CBT and stuff like that. I remember saying to her, like a lot of times, like I have all the skills, like, I, like, you know, like, obviously I'm not perfect, but like, I'm like, I do all the self-care and I go to therapy and I have friends and whatever. I have some friends and, <laughs> uh, and like, but I still can't access those tools. I'm like, it was learning about this, uh, this other stuff, like whatever somatic or whatever other modalities of therapy um just from like learning from you learning from my other friends who are therapists my own taking my own courses even like intuitive eating like you know intuitive eating dietitians talk about this stuff all the time because we do like integrate therapeutic tools um it just it really makes a lot of sense and like I even just last night was teaching it in my support group um because I took um Kayla Levin's like um I can't remember what it was, but she had somebody on, I think she was a therapist talking about the nervous system. I can't remember if she was a therapist, but I tell my clients that I have in my office, I wrote myself a trigger level, like a zero mm-hmm. to 10. And yeah. I wrote, <laughs> I probably told you this. I wrote on one side, zero is cool as a cucumber and 10 is I will kill you. Even if you breathe near me, <laughs> that's my zero to 10. So like, I, I, it's like so interesting. Cause like, it's, it's similar to like the you know, hunger fullness scale that like, we don't go from, um, we don't go from like, um, zero to 10. We don't go from 10 to zero. Like, so the goal and intuitive eating really, um, overlaps with this. Cause it's the goal is like learning about your body, learning about your subtle cues, right. learning about how to, you know, not get to a place where you're like offline, like you said. So right. I really right. like the integration. Right. And I actually, I didn't even talk about the window of tolerance. No, but you're going to come on again. So, you know, the window of tolerance is that piece of noticing, right? We'll talk about it more, but it is, it's it's getting to know your nervous system. That's really what it is. It's as I get to know my nervous system, I can pick up on nuances than where maybe I wasn't able to before. For sure. So interesting. It's like, so it's such a, like, like you said, it's like such an intuitive thing. Like, like, you know, like there's like such an intuition to it, but like, oh, right. Like my nervous system is different than your nervous system. My pain tolerance is different than yours. And like the same thing with like hunger and fullness and body shapes and sizes. And Absolutely. like, you know, without Absolutely. like any judgment, without any whatever feelings about it. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. it is yeah. what it is. Right. And that's what makes it no one size fits all. Yeah. It's amazing. Okay. So I'm not going to keep you because I know you have supervision. So this was yes. amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope you'll come on again. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, 
please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.